Good evening, everyone. Welcome to our third annual Seven Last Words Good Friday service. It's great to see all of you here. My name is Bob. I'm one of the pastors here at Saving Grace Church. And tonight, we've got seven local area churches represented here, which people have said to me when I've told them that, how do you get seven churches to come together at one time with all of the differences that people believe? And uh, the reason that we're here is the one reason that we are all on common ground with, and that is one man, one God, one name, above all other names, Jesus Christ. He's the reason that we're here. Amen. He's the reason we can lay aside all of our far less significant differences and unite in him tonight. And that's, that's why we're here. So as we pray, I'd like to start out by praying for our evening. And as we pray, I'd like to, for us to consider what he prayed just before he was arrested in the garden. And this comes from John chapter 17. And I'd like us to pray along these lines. In John 17... Verses 20 through 23, this is a part of our Lord's prayer. He said, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me. Again, he says that they, may that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Let's bow and ask God to unite us together tonight in his Son. Father, it is with great thanksgiving, Lord, that we gather here tonight in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. And we come to you, Lord, with great confidence based on what he has done, not in and of ourselves. We commit this evening to him, and our bold request tonight is that he alone would receive abundant glory tonight. Father, we ask that you would reveal more of his greatness and more of his worth to us this evening. And Father, we pray that as a result of this service, that you would unite us together in Christ even more as a result of our time tonight, because we know that this brings you glory. So Lord, we come boldly to your throne of grace to receive your grace for this evening. And we ask that we ask that you give it to us in a bold way, not because we deserve it, but because Jesus Christ has already purchased this grace for us through his death on the cross and his resurrection. May he be glorified tonight above all other things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, our format tonight is very simple. We've got seven speakers from seven area churches who are going to speak for hopefully seven minutes each. Now, these are long-winded preachers, so I don't know. We're going to try to end it around 8.30, but we might go a little farther. Uh, and they're going to be speaking each on one of the seven last words of Christ from the cross. 
So we're going to get started because of these long-winded preachers, and Greg's going to lead us in a song, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. We're going to begin with that. If you would please stand, we'll worship our Lord together. The next speaker is David Hansen from Belua Baptist Church. Good evening. Hey, so good to be with all of you. We're just so thankful that God has brought the church together. Um, all the different ones that are here and even the ones that aren't here, they all send their love. I mean, I've spoken to at least three pastors who couldn't be here today who send their love and are excited for what God's doing here. Um, I want to start by saying, firstly, that the seven last words or statements that we're looking at here today that Jesus said on the cross are not in any way more special or more significant than any of the other words that you read in the book. Okay? Has anyone got a Bible? Can you hold that Bible up? All right. That book is filled with red letters. It's all red. Okay? So it's not just the black text and the red text which somehow makes any difference. It is the same God who wrote it. We are dwelling on these sayings particularly because there is something specific regarding the event we are celebrating here. It's a victory we are celebrating. We're not being sorry for Jesus here. What are we doing? We're celebrating what Jesus has accomplished. So let's just quickly go to our first statement. It's taken from the book of Luke. Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Or they do not know what they are doing. I want to talk about this verse in reverse, because there is something that we need to understand about what Jesus was seeing. Firstly, he was seeing that they do not know what they do. He was cognizant of a spiritual state of people in general. There was something that was happening, so it was not just the people who were mocking him in that passage there, the people who were d deciding to divide his cloak and cast lots for it. It wasn't that Pilate was the guy who passed judgment on him. It wasn't the Jews who brought him before Pilate. All those people were culpable. All those people were involved in what this statement says. But it's far more reaching. It's a condition of mankind. In Romans chapter 3, uh, the Apostle Paul says, Well then, are we, the Jews, better off than the Gentiles? Not at all. This is in verse 9. For we have all already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under the control of sin and subject to its power. As it, had as it is written and remains written forever, there is none righteous, none that meets God's standard, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. No, not one. This is quite an indictment. Right there. Just in case we think that there was something within the goodness of man that was salvageable. This declaration has been made in Scripture and it is repeated here in, in this passage in Romans. In Romans chapter 7, when you see that turmoil, who will save me from this body of sin? 
Who will rescue me? It proceeds to say, thanks be to God. In 1 John 5, 19, it says, For we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. I've got other scripture verses there that you could look up. But for you to understand one thing, that we are living in a place that is controlled by sin. Not just under the influence of sin, controlled by sin. So when Jesus is making this statement, he knows that there is something that Romans 3 is referencing. They are under the control of something that they cannot help themselves. And then he proceeds to say, forgive them. He was mediating, making a legal defense before a righteous God on behalf of a people who are in control. He was stepping in. He was willing to be our sacrifice. For that righteous anger that God had towards sin. For the wages of sin is. And for that death, someone had to pay. He was willing to be that sacrificial lamb. Mark 10, 45 says, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. In John 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the only way, the real truth. In the real life, no one comes to the Father except through me. He was putting himself in between that punishment that you and I had to bear. He was putting himself in between the effects of sin and the engine that propagated it in you and I. He was starting something that was completely new. Something that the human race was incapable of by themselves. This is one of my favorite passages. If, if, you, if you know me long enough, that you'll eventually find me talking about this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16 and 17, it talks about a transformation from old to new. Everyone loves the verse. Behold, all, all, all things have passed away and the new has come. We all like that, but what does it talk about? It's saying that you are completely transferred out from one place into another. That passage ends with this. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He became our substitute who took on our sin so that we could be called the righteousness of God. Ponder on that for a second. Slow everything down till you recognize that the righteousness of God is not something that's handed out like a freebie. We're talking about the very character of God, the very essence of who God is. His righteousness is being put onto you. And he's taken on himself who you were. And finally he ends with this. Our father who is in heaven. He was talking to his father. And this is the best part. Who would now 
become our father. In Matthew chapter 6, when he, sa- when he says, pray in this way, our father. And later on he says, I'm not, don't, don't mess with me, don't touch me, <laughs> don't cling to me. For I have not yet ascended to the father, he says to Mary in the garden. But go to my brothers and say, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. There was something that he had accomplished on that cross which totally changed how you and I would address the righteous creator, the righteous one, the holy one, the one who holds our destiny in his hand. We now approach him as our father. So to close it off, I just want to say this one thing. In all of the things you hear today, if you do not know God as your father, that is why Jesus came, that you might know him. The next speaker is Scott Pfeiffer from Divine Destiny Ministries. God bless you, everybody. How y'all feeling? Y'all happy tonight? As my brother said, this is not a time of... uh, this is a time of remembering, but it's not a time of mourning. We're here to celebrate, amen, the greatest love story, amen, ever on print or the greatest love story ever carried out. Amen. I was assigned tonight to speak from St. John chapter 19, one of the last words of Jesus. Verse 25, now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother and his mother's sisters, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. Amen. There's a picture of Jesus and on the cross. We don't know what hour the day it was. We know that he was on the cross from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. And we know that his mother was there. I don't know if she was there from the beginning. The Bible doesn't really say a whole lot about the time frame or how long she was there. But you can imagine that the mother of Jesus Christ is watching her son. He's looking up, seeing her son in this horrible way dying this horrible death on the cross, suffering a execution that he certainly did not do anything to deserve. Amen. And this is her baby. This was the one that she carried in her womb for nine months. Amen. She was a borrowed vessel of the Lord. The Lord came to her with a proposition that well, really with an invitation for her to become the mother of the Savior. And amen. And she accepted it. And uh, we know that, of course, after the joy went down, oh, wow, God has chosen me. But the natural reality is, is that when she starts showing, you know, she's engaged. She hasn't been married yet. She has not had relationship with her husband. And so into this engagement, she starts showing. And so, of course, her personal reputation takes a hit. This is one of the, I guess, the sacrifices that you make when you join, when you become a believer, when you uh, want to be used by the Lord. And so even her husband-to-be 
was planning on divorcing her because he assumed that she was unfaithful and what are you going to say? You know, no, 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 I never slept with anybody. This is an act of God. And there's a husband saying, yeah, right. But we all know the story how the angel of the Lord spoke to Joseph and says, you know, don't divorce her. This is of the Lord. So anyway, she's carrying this blessed child, this child who is the uh, product of the Holy Spirit. When he's born, she gets him dedicated and a devout gentleman comes and he uh, prophesies over her. First of all, he blesses the baby. He thanks God that the Lord let him live long enough to see the salvation or the consolation of Israel. Then he says to her that this child has been designated by the Lord for the rising and the falling of many in Israel. And he said, a sword shall pierce through your soul. And I'm sure she didn't understand what he was talking about at that time. But at that day on Cal at that fateful day, as she's looking up and seeing her son, the one that she loved, you know, dying like that, there had to have been thoughts coming through her mind. And I'm, and I'm going to assume that as any natural mother, she probably was praying for God to intervene, praying that a miracle would happen, that, she, he, that, she, that maybe angels would come from heaven and take him down off of that cross. But she didn't understand that it was necessary for him to be up at that cross. So anyway, Jesus is up there. We know that he's he's beaten to a pulp. His body is just ripped to shreds. He's, you know, nails in his hands and his feet, bleeding, dry blood. I mean, unrecognizable as, as her son. And she's sitting up there and her heart is just broken into many pieces like any mother here, if your son, if that was your son. And so Jesus, you know, in between his sufferings, looks down and sees that she's not only she there, but the scripture says that the one disciple that he loved, and he loved all of his disciples. But the difference was is that John knew how much he was loved by Jesus Christ. Do we know how much we're loved by Jesus Christ? Are you still feeling sorry for yourself? You're going through some hard times and you're focusing on your problems, but you've forgotten that in the midst of the problems, God loves you so much. Amen. That he says, be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Amen. And so your problems is nothing for me to overcome. But anyway, that's another subject. <laughs> amen. You see, I'm Baptist. I kind of like to hear an amen. <laughs> so anyway, let me wind this up here. So anyway, he says, he looks down and he sees these two that are dear to his heart. And so he says, woman, behold your son. Now, when I was a child, I thought Jesus was saying to his mother, look, behold me. And I came to find out he wasn't saying, look at me. He's saying, Look at John. Amen. Behold your son. I'm changing your relationship. You're not just friends anymore. Amen. You're not just fellow worshipers. He says, this is your son. And then he says to John, John, this is your mother. Amen. Son, behold your mother. And amen. And that's all he said. And John understood perfectly what he meant. And he, the Bible says that he took her from that day home. Amen. To be his mother, to treat her like a mother. And now the thing that goes through my mind is Jesus wasn't just the only child, but he had, the Bible says that he had several siblings. He had many brothers, had a couple sisters. And I'm thinking to myself, why would he entrust his mother with a friend rather than saying, well, even though I'm going to be taken away from this life, you know, I got some brothers down here, the second oldest, he can take her in. But he assigned that responsibility to a disciple. And one thing the Lord 
I believe the Lord told me was that I feel more comfortable with believers and I can relate to believers more as family than with my own flesh and blood. And someone says, what, what, what do you mean by that? Well, think about this. Jesus was having a meeting and he was teaching. And scripture says one day uh, his, his mother and his brothers, they were desiring to see him. And uh, I don't know what the, what, why they wanted to see them, but it could not have been too important because of the way Jesus responded. Someone came to him and says, Messiah, Messiah, stop teaching, stop ministering. Your mother and your brother are standing outside, and they want to see you. And Jesus turns around and he says, who is my family? Who is my mother? Who is my brother? He said, these that hear the word of God and do them. Amen. So, in other words, God said, Jesus was saying, I feel more connected to people that are hungry for the things of God than my own brothers and sisters. And so, uh, and then in, in, in another uh, scripture, uh, the scripture said Jesus' brothers, his flesh and blood brothers, or rather his half-brothers, they were goading him to go up to Jerusalem, and they were being very sarcastic and being very mean. He says, why are you staying back here in the shadows? You want to be known by everybody as this great man? Get on out of here. Go on up there and make yourself known. And the scripture says, because his own brothers did not believe him. Amen. So going back to the end of the story here of Mary, he says, Mary, the natural thing for me to do is to entrust you into the care of your other children. He says, but I want to give you the best. I want to put you in the hands of the best, another brother, so another believer. And so you're going to be a mother to him like he was a mother to me. Amen. And you're James, John, you're going to be a son to her. You take care of her. Amen. The way she deserves to be taken care of. Amen. She's done. She's been through a lot. Amen. She's suffered a lot. She's heard a lot of criticisms. Amen. Her heart is breaking, but you take her home and you comfort her. Amen. Because in three days from now, glory be to God. Hallelujah. Amen. Those tears are going to be turned into joy. He said, for right now, she needs to be comforted. And I don't feel comfortable leaving her in the hands of unbelievers, even if they are my own siblings. I want her to be in the hands of real family. And so I want to encourage us today that we need to, as my brother said, we, are, we know to each other after the flesh, even in Christian circles. Amen. It's white Christians. It's black Christians. It's those people over there. It's Baptists. But we are family. Amen. We don't know each other after the flesh. I'm a brother that just happens to be black, but I'm not your black brother. Amen. I'm your brother. So therefore, amen, when you see me crying, amen, don't just leave me crying. So, oh, that brother, I feel so sorry for that, that, that poor guy. No, 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 take me home. Amen. Pray for me. Take me, hallelujah. When you see me hungry, feed me. When you see me going astray, go after me. I'm your brother. That's what he's saying. He's saying, mother, this is your son. Son, this is your mother. And my seven minutes have long been up. God bless you. That's my, that's, uh, that's my big brother. I'm excited to be with you all this evening and this, as we celebrate this great weekend of the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to be able to do that with a community of brothers and sisters in the Lord. You know, the day that Jesus was crucified, that he wasn't the only one that was crucified. 
there were two other men that were crucified with him. And I believe that those two men represent us as mankind on the cross. The Bible says that these men were criminals, one version says, or thieves. They were getting what they deserved that day. They were being punished because they were not good, as, as Pastor Judah had shared earlier. No, not one. They were deserving of death. And the interesting thing is they both knew that. Both of them. They knew they were deserving of death. We read in Luke where, where the one actually recognizes Jesus, but Matthew and Mark tell us that both of those men reviled Jesus. Both of those men mocked him. Both of them were hurling insults at the Lord. And now we know at some point, one of them had a transformation. Something happened while he was on that cross that he recognized Jesus as a Lord and as Savior. Something as the Holy Spirit was drawing him while he was there. And he, the only difference between the two men was one accepted God's grace and the other rejected it. Neither one of them wanted to go through the suffering and the death that they were experiencing. Neither one of them wanted to do that. But one of them wanted Jesus to save him on his own terms. He even come out and said, Jesus, he said, why don't you save yourself and us if you really are God? In other words, I want you to save me. I don't want to go through this, but I don't want to change either. But the other one said, he said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. As the Holy Spirit was drawing this man. And see, and to understand that, we've got to go back to the beginning when God created man. When God created man, he had a relationship with him with no barrier. Nothing separated the original man, Adam, from God. Nothing. They daily walked in communion, had a relationship, walked in that garden, that paradise. It's, it tells us in, in, in the Bible that, that, that we actually were created in Christ Jesus from the foundation of the world. You see, these men represented mankind. And mankind and God, there was no separation. We were members of him. We were part of him. Until disobedience came in and sin, and man fell from the grace of God by choice. We chose to disobey him. And we became sinners. Every one of us then, because of one man's disobedience, all were made sinners. Just like as one man's obedience we could all be made righteous if we receive it. And so there became a separation between God and man. And that separation was our sin that had to be dealt with. And this man on the cross looks at Jesus and said, Lord, remember me. The word re means to do it again. Because the cry of mankind that day was, Lord, make me a member again 
the way it was before there was no sin, the way it was when you originally created us to have a relationship with you in the garden. That's the way we want to have it again. We want to be a member again. So, Lord, remember me. In other words, place me back into your membership. And the Lord said, today, today is the day. Now is the day of salvation. Today, you will be with me in paradise. This day, we go back to my original plan. Because the only way that that could work is I've got to pay the price for it. The only way that you can become a member again in order for me to remember you is I've got to die. I've got to shed my blood as a perfect sacrifice to pay the price for all the sin of mankind. And that is what allows you to be a member today. Today, you will be with me in paradise. And my prayer tonight, and, and, and as I was praying about speaking tonight, I felt, I felt this. I really felt that look, I'm not here tonight for the 99. I'm here tonight for the one. I'm not here for the thieves. All of us are thieves. All of us are criminals. Every one of us have hurled insult at Jesus by our life. Every one of us was born into sin. I know that most of us, like the one thief on the cross, have accepted the grace of God and have entered into a membership and have been remembered and have joined him back into paradise in relationship. But tonight I'm speaking to the one, the thieves, the ones who have yet to receive that grace, who know who Jesus is, just like the man on the cross, he knew. Who want Jesus to do something for them, but they don't want to change. Who want Jesus to fix them, but they don't want to repent. That's who I'm speaking to tonight. And I trust that tonight you won't leave here without being remembered, without receiving God's grace and what he did. I love the song that we opened up with, the fountain that's still flowing because that was a one-time sacrifice for all, that this day, today, you can know him in paradise. Paradise being the born-again relationship where we enter back in to have relationship without any barrier. Why? Because the barrier has been removed by our Lord and Savior if we'll receive that. And today... You can know him and be with him in paradise. The next speaker is Mark Altrogi from Saving Grace Church. Thank you so much for coming, everyone. This is really so pleasing to the Lord, I believe. I'm going to speak about the cry in the darkness. A long time ago, in a galaxy far far away. Well, actually, a long, long time ago, when I was about 10 years old, in a state far away, Missouri, my parents took our family to 
Onondaga Cave in Leesburg, Missouri. Anybody ever heard of it? Well, this was this, this really cool tour. Um, we all went inside. The cave was beautiful. It was lit up. It was glorious on the inside. But at one point in the tour, and they told us they were going to do this, they said, we're going to turn out the lights. And when they turned out the lights, we were immersed in total darkness. I mean, I put my hand, I was 10 years old, I put my hand right here. I could not see anything. Now, at the time, though, I wasn't scared because I could hear my parents' voices. I could hear voices all around me. And just after a couple of minutes, they turned them back on. But it was the one time in my life I was engulfed in total darkness. It only lasted for seconds. But there was a day when the whole land was engulfed in darkness and an infinitely deeper, more terrifying darkness engulfed Jesus' soul. And so Matthew 27, 45 and 46. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cried out, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? For three hours, three hours, this was not just a couple minutes, for three hours, from noon till three in the afternoon, Jesus hung on the cross in total darkness. And it was a supernatural darkness that engulfed the land. But that darkness was a picture of the much deeper, more horrific spiritual darkness that engulfed Jesus' soul. And at the end of three hours, in the darkness, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did he do that? Well, first of all, he did it because he was fulfilling what the Old Testament prophet David wrote in Psalm 22.1. Jesus fulfilled over 300 Old Testament prophecies about him. And this is one of them where David wrote in Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? But I, verse 6, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Does that sound familiar? That's, what the, that's the exact thing the leaders were saying about Jesus. David said, many bulls encompass me, verse 12. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. Think of the crucifixion. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My, my tongue sticks to my, draw, my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. My tongue sticks to my jaws. We're going to hear how Jesus cried out, I thirst. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. They have pierced my hands and my feet. 
I can count on my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Jesus fulfilled all these things. Jesus fulfilled. They pierced my hands and my feet. Jesus fulfilled. They divide my garments among them. For my clothing they cast lots. David wrote this approximately a thousand years before Jesus fulfilled it. And so Jesus, by crying out, said this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was saying, I am the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah. I am the ultimate fulfillment of what David was writing about. Now think about this. Crucifixion did not even exist in the day of David. And yet he wrote about this. My, they have pierced my hands and my feet. And so Jesus fulfilled all the prophecies about him. And secondly, Jesus cried, this, cried out this because in the ultimate sense, he was forsaken by God. For all eternity, think about this, for all eternity, Jesus had enjoyed perfect, unbroken, joyful, infinitely joyful fellowship with his Father. For all eternity, for all eternity, the Father absolutely delighted in Jesus, for Jesus was infinitely beautiful, holy, and delightful. But now, in a way, Jesus has become the opposite of everything good and delightful. For in God's eyes, He has become the very most despicable, horrific, horrible, vile thing, the very opposite of the holiness of God. Because as Judah quoted earlier, 1 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake... He made Him to be sin who knew no sin. That in Him we might become the righteousness of God. He made Jesus to be sin. As He hung on the cross, God the Father laid on Jesus every sin of every person who would ever live. Every murder, every act of immorality, every lie, every wicked thought, every curse word, every blasphemy, every crime, every hatred, every single sin I ever committed and you ever committed. Now, I just think if, if Jesus had suffered just for my sins alone, the horrible wrath, that one sin against a holy, infinitely holy God deserves. I can't even fathom what Jesus would have suffered just for my sins. But look at this room, 600 or so people. How many sins is that? And how many sins of every human being who ever lived laid on Jesus so that He became sin? He so identified with our sins, He didn't literally become sin itself, but He so took on our sins. He so identified with our sins. He became sin to the Father. And it says so that we, so that in Him, we might become the righteousness of God. And this is the divine exchange. Because God laid all our sins on Jesus, then poured out His horrific wrath so that in His soul, Jesus was forsaken by God. 
Jesus, in essence, went to hell for us. He experienced hell. So that because God laid on Him His wrath and all our sins, when we believe in Jesus, as the Bible tells us He is, when we believe in Jesus, God counts the very righteousness of Christ to us as if we had lived Jesus' perfect life, never sinned, and always perfectly obeyed the Father. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? That's how God looks at us who have believed in Jesus. As righteous as Jesus. I mean, that's what we're celebrating tonight. He's, he's not looking at us when we're standing in worship like, you foul sinner. He says, I see the righteousness of Christ. So we have every reason to celebrate because of what Jesus did for us. Because Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We can cry out, My God, my God, why have you so accepted me? Why do you love me so much? I don't know, but glory to you. Praise to you. We worship you and adore you. The next speaker is Timothy Metcalf from Lord Jesus Christ Assembly. Rejoicing to you, uh, saints. Our uh, text that I'm going to be studying or being teaching is in uh, John 19. We're going to read about two verses because the one will explain the reason for the word that Jesus says. John 19, verses 28 and 29. After this, Jesus seeing that all things had already been accomplished so that the scripture might be fulfilled. He said, I am thirsting. Now, a vessel full of vinegar was set there, and they, having filled a sponge with vinegar and having put it on hyssop, they bore it to his mouth. This tells us the reason that the Lord said this. Obviously, he was thirsty. He is the truth. He cannot lie. It's, it wasn't just something to say. It was really thirsty. But the reason that is given is that the Lord Jesus Christ saw that everything else that had been prophesied about his death had already been accomplished except for this last thing. And so that it would be accomplished, he said, I thirst. That last thing to be accomplished was Psalm 69 and verse 21, just the B part of it, actually, that says, And for my thirst they gave me vinegar, to drink. I'd like us to kind of look at this word as a lens through which we can see something about the person and the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. Two things in particular. I'm sure we could, with meditation, come up with many more, but consider these two things that he says that it says about him when he says this, I thirst, so that the scripture would be accomplished. 
We've got first his absolute selflessness. And that upon the backdrop of his utter commitment to the Scripture. I don't think that we can imaginatively ever experience all that the Lord Jesus Christ was feeling at this time. Uh, as, as Mark just got done speaking to us concerning this depth of sorrow and shame, the wrath of God, the judgment of God upon the Lord Jesus Christ invading His holy soul. But as we try sometimes maybe to think about what was it that the Lord Jesus Christ endured? What was it like? What would it have been like? And I think that that's a valuable exercise so that we appreciate Him more. I just don't think we'll ever be able to fully appreciate that. But when I've thought about that in the past, I've thought, what would I be thinking? And I think that because I'm not the one, I'm not the Lord Jesus Christ who's utterly selfless, I think that I would be overwhelmed with absorbed with the pain that I was going through, I wouldn't be thinking about anything except how miserable I am, about how much I'm suffering. The Lord Jesus Christ had the presence of mind to not think about himself at all. This was the culmination of a selfless life. His whole life was lived this way in what I like to call the canonic protocol, God's program for the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. As God the Son entered humanity, the, the standard program for him was don't think about self at all for his whole life. And here at the point where you would most understand it if he thought about self, if he were paralyzed by the pain that he was going through. Rather, he's thinking in terms of the Scripture and how it must be fulfilled. Those times when we are in pain, those are the hardest times for us to function scripturally, for us to operate biblically, for us to doctrinally negotiate life. And I'm sure from a human standpoint, it might be able to be said that that was the hardest time for him to do it too. But he did such. He's thinking Scripture must be fulfilled. This utter loyalty to the Scripture that he had. Reflecting that absolute selflessness you know, when, when we are in great sorrow, when we are in heightened grief, when we are experiencing a depth of sadness, all of which could be applied to this time that the Lord Jesus Christ was speaking here, sometimes we find the simplest things, the easiest things, the smallest things, a huge task. We have to force ourselves to do even the daily things of life. Uh, you, I think of that, that uh, commercial. I think it's for some kind of medication for 
depression, uh, the, where the dog is bringing the leash to the guy and, and saying, like, take me out. But the guy's suffering from depression, and he's, he doesn't, he, he doesn't want to deal with anything. The Lord Jesus Christ on this occasion is in heightened misery, both physically and soulically. But he's not just committed to the word. And he isn't just fulfilling scripture. He is the word. He is the totality of scripture embodied. He is the Bible hypostatized in a person. Let's use today to take I thirst and let it be used as a tool to help us adore the unique personality of eternity, our Lord Jesus Christ. The next speaker is Micah McMillan from Old Mahoning Baptist Church. John chapter 19 and verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. It, I wrestle in my mind when I call this Good Friday, the darkest day in history. But yet it was good, not because of what happened to Jesus, but what Jesus did for us. As I look at this passage, and as I hear the other men of God share from his word the things that happened to our lovely Lord Jesus, it was because of our sin and because of our separation from him that he wanted to restore, that he endured the cross. And as I think of what he did, I jotted down some things. But that day when he cried, it is finished, he sealed redemption. He paid the price that none of us could pay. We couldn't come up with it if we were good all our lives, if we gave everything we had, if we suffered that agonizing death, we still would not be the perfect sacrifice. He could do that because he was God in the flesh. We see some things that were accomplished. Well, what did he do? He went through great agony and suffering and pain, and he provided the plan of redemption, and he paid the greatest price that could be paid, and he showed the greatest act of love. Didn't he say, greater love has no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends? So in those three words, we see some things that happen. As was alluded to by Pastor Mark, all the types, prophecies, and promises of the Old Testament were fulfilled. It was complete. Acts chapter 3, verse 18 says, But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all of his prophets, that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. I'm glad to be standing here with the checkered flag when he said, It is finished. Not one more thing has to be done for your redemption. He satisfied the requirement that God had for our forgiveness. Not only did all those things get fulfilled, the second thing I jotted down is all the sacrifices of the Jewish law were now abolished. Not one more sacrifice had to be made in the temple. Not one more sheep slaughtered. 
for the covering of sin. There could be forgiveness and there could be, you know, a, a payment paid that we could have eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So that was satisfied. All the requirements for this, this perfect sacrifice for a necessary salvation are complete because he was a picture of perfect obedience. He was a spotless lamb that you can read about in 1 Peter 1.19, that we were redeemed with the precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. All the demands of God's wrath were complete. On the cross, the darkest day in history, the wrath of God was satisfied through the price that Jesus paid on the cross. The last thing I jotted down, and it brings me great joy to share this to you, is that all the power of Satan, sin, and death were destroyed. No one could lay down their life but Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, 57. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is how you can call the worst day in history the greatest day in history. That's why we're dated A.D., after the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Don't let them change it on you. This CE stuff, let that stuff go. It is still because of the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. His story is his story. And it is all about Jesus. And let me conclude this thing. What did he do for us? Not only how did he do that? How would we have paid the penalty of sin? And what kind of attitude would we have? Let me remind you of a great verse, and I'll conclude this message with this. Hebrews 12, 2 says, Looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is set down on the right hand to the of the throne of God. Why did he do that? So that we could have life and have it more abundantly. Thank God that we have the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. When he cried, it is finished, it all started. The final speaker is Mel Massengale from the Summit Church. Micah went short. Does that mean I get to take his time? No? Uh, hey, it's great to see you tonight. My name is Mel Massengale. I'm the lead pastor at the Summit Church, and I am so grateful that, uh, that I've been uh, part of this evening with you, and um, the thing I love about this, wow, they're out in the lobby. You should have gotten here earlier. Uh, the thing I love about this is that you look around this room, and it's such a diverse community of believers here in Indiana. Uh, even in this place, uh, we, we've got some different theologies and some, some different little twists on what we believe or maybe don't believe or whatever it might be. Uh, we've got different races. We've got different socioeconomic backgrounds. But the thing we have in common in this place is one Savior that loves us passionately and desperately. And we can rally together by setting aside our differences and celebrate that. Um, and so I'm so thankful that we to, to, to come together tonight. Um, if, I, if I can be honest with you, while I was sitting on the front row, um, I had a moment where I thought, you know what would help th these services uh, maybe next year? And this is just Mark and Bob, you guys just maybe, you know, take this under advisement. I was thinking maybe we could do like big introductions for the speakers, like pro wrestling, like <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, you know, something like that. Preaching from parts unknown, Mark the Hammer of God, Al Troge. Like, I was. I'm just throwing it out there. But I promise I was listening to the, to the messages. Um, 
But what we see here in this place represented in our diversity is incredible uh, because one of the things that we all have in common besides hopefully a unified Savior, we all serve Jesus in this place. One of the things everyone, everyone who's born into humanity, every one of us in this place, but everyone in this city, in this region has in common is suffering. Every one of us in this place has suffered. Maybe you will say, well, I haven't suffered like they've suffered. Like, yes, I've got problems, but I don't have problems like they have problems. My problems aren't that bad. But the truth is, all of us experience suffering. And all of us have walked through difficult seasons and seasons of loss and disappointment and seasons where we thought our dreams had died. And I'm thankful that we serve a risen Savior today. And it's clear when we look at the story of Jesus tonight, several of the the preachers that have preceded me have shared with you the suffering that Jesus endured. It was incredible, the suffering that Jesus endured. The, the physical suffering, the emotional suffering, the spiritual suffering he endured by bearing the weight of the sin of humanity on the cross, it was incredible. And so I want us to look at, at the last word we're going to be sharing tonight. It's from Luke chapter 23, verse 46, and it says this, Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last breath. Now, Jesus spoke these words, and I'm so glad that, that Pastor Mark referenced Psalm 22. But if you look at the psalmist and some of the things he experienced, at the very least it was foreshadowing, and I would even say it was prophetic, what we see from Psalm 22 and what Jesus experienced. But when Jesus says the words, Father, unto you I commit my, into your hands I commit my spirit, he's, he's not just throwing out some eloquent words, he's quoting scripture here. Because Jesus is suffering, and he's enduring this beating, and he's enduring his time on the cross. What do you think he's thinking about? Now, I have heard people say he was thinking about you, and yes, he was thinking about you. But if, if you remember, this was a man. He's hanging on the cross, and he's trying to endure the suffering and endure the pain. And he is, I, I can't help but believe that he's reminding himself of Scripture. He's reminding himself of the times that, that, that God has come through for the people in the past. He's remembering the words of the psalmist, and he's reminding himself and comforting himself with the word of God. And I'm thankful that we can do the same. And so in his last breath, in his last moment, he quotes Psalm chapter 31. Let me read a little bit more of it for you. It's, I'm going to start in verse 3. It says, for, and this is the psalmist. This is David talking. He's dealing with a difficult situation, difficult season. And it doesn't say specifically what it is, but it's clear that he's got opposition. People are against him. And he's crying out to God. And he says in verse 3, For you are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net that they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Now listen to this. He says, Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. What is it saying here? What the psalmist, what David is saying here is, God, my life seems to be a mess. Everyone seems to be against me. None of my plans seem to be working. I've done everything I can, but here I am, God. Does anybody relate to that? And he says, God, into your hand I commit my spirit. What is he saying? He said, God, I trust you. I can't do this. I, I can't make the situation work. I can't scheme it together. I can't, I can't manipulate it. Not, there's not enough duct tape on planet Earth to make my plans work. So God, at the end of the day, I'm just going to trust you. I don't know how it's going to work out. I don't know what it's going to look like. But into your hand, I commit my spirit. I trust you with everything. I trust you implicitly. In fact, Jesus, in his last words, he knew that he was facing death. He said, even in death, he said, 
into your hand I commit my spirit. Even facing death, God, I trust you implicitly, without reservation, without anything holding me back. And I look at this and I marvel at that because we love to think that we would do the same thing, right? But our car breaks down and we're like, God, you must hate me, right? I can't believe it. What's going on, God? We can't trust God with, with financial situations at times. But yet here, our Savior says, facing death into your hand, I commit my spirit. I trust you implicitly with my situation, with what I'm dealing with, with my suffering. I trust you. I am yours in every way, and I'm holding nothing back. Because this is one of the things we have to understand when it comes to suffering. Every one of us deal with suffering, and if you're here and you're like, I don't deal with suffering, I would love for you to write a book and then tithe to Saving Grace on it, okay? But I would love to hear what you have to say, how you've avoided suffering. Because if, you, if you've never dealt with suffering, you will. Just wait, okay? It's coming, I promise. Because the Bible doesn't promise us a suffering-free life. And if you think it does, you're reading a different version than I'm reading. Because what the Bible does promise us is that God will be with us and draw near to us through our suffering. And so I'm thankful that God is with us in our suffering. But suffering produces something in your life. When you suffer, it's producing something. You might not realize it, but it is. It's either, it's either producing something healthy and vibrant or it's producing something detrimental. If you look on in chapter 23, verse 47 here, it says, after Jesus had spoken the words and he had passed, in verse 47 it says, Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. In verse 48 says, And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw that it had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And this was a sign of grieving. And this was a sign of mourning. This was a sign of repentance. So the people that had gathered together and thought they were going to see a show, they left there after watching Jesus' suffering. And his suffering produced something. And it produced repentance. And it, re it produced grieving. And it produced changed hearts because people saw what Jesus endured. And they said there was something different about the way he suffered. There was something different about the way he lived. And we saw earlier um, that, that even the thief on the cross... Uh, Pastor Scott talked about the thief on the cross. He was changed. Why was he changed? Because he saw how Jesus suffered. And he said there's something different about that. His suffering produced life in the people around him. Now, this is what we have to understand. Our suffering is producing something. For many people, suffering produces bitterness and hatred. And what that does is it drives wedges in between family members and in churches and in relationships and communities because it's producing the wrong thing. But in Jesus, clearly we see that suffering produced life and repentance and something new. And my question to you tonight is, what is your suffering producing? When you suffer, are you suffering well? Are you suffering in such a way that the people around you see you and they recognize there is something different about the way they suffer? We were talking before we came out tonight, but I'm so thankful that the scripture never says, um, live a really godly life, or be really nice to everybody, or tip your waitresses big, and that's how the world will know you're my, my disciples. No, Jesus, what did he say? He said, love one another, and this is how the world will know that you're my followers, right? By loving each other well, but I really believe when we suffer well through our suffering, the world will see that, and they'll respond to that, and they're going to see that our God is a good God. Uh, the 
Philippians is one of my favorite books of the Bible. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul gives his like spiritual resume, and he says, you know what, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, and I was, I was a, a, a Pharisee, and you know, I, I did all these incredible things. In modern vernacular, it was like, I went to church all the time. I had the gold star of attendance, and I taught Sunday school, and I was an usher, and I did all these incredible things. And then Paul says, but I realized that none of it mattered. None of it. I thought it was in, I thought it was in the plus column, but it should have been in the minus column. Right? I thought it was building my righteousness, but I realized it was all for loss. It was, it was for naught. Why? Because he realized his works were nothing. And this is what he says. He says, um, it was nothing because it was my righteousness. And he said, I took on the righteousness of Christ through faith, and that's what changed everything. And he goes on in verse 10 to say that I might know him and the power of his resurrection. And we love the resurrection, Right? And that's why we're here this weekend is to celebrate the resurrection of Christ because there's life in Christ. But he, he doesn't just say, I want to share in the power of his resurrection. He says, and may share his sufferings. We don't get excited about that part, do we? There's not a lot of shouting on that part. That I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain resurrection from the dead. Paul's saying, you know what? I don't want to just get into heaven someday. You know what I want to share in the entire experience of who Christ is? I want to be one with him. I want to live with him. I want to have that resurrection with him. But you know what? You cannot have resurrection without suffering and death. He said, I want to be one with that as well. So my question to you tonight is, how are you suffering? When the world sees you, are you suffering well? Because Christ suffered really well. We experience new life today because Christ loved you so much he was willing to suffer and die a humiliating, agonizing death on the cross. And people saw that. And thousands of years later, people are changed because we see the way he suffered. And we see the amount of love that he had for us, what carried him through that. So my question to you tonight is, how are you suffering? My prayer is that you will suffer well. Maybe you're here tonight and you're a person that maybe you're far from God. Maybe you came here because somebody invited you. Maybe you came here um, out of just some religious habit. But the truth is maybe you're suffering under the ultimate suffering. It's, it's not some circumstantial thing, but maybe you're suffering from the weight of sin. You've never repented of that. You've never asked Jesus into your life. You've never made him Lord of your life. There's an opportunity to do that. In just a moment, Pastor Joe's going to come and close us. But I want you to know the world sees you. Your family sees you. The people around you see you. I want to challenge you tonight, suffer well. Let God be glorified through your suffering. And when he does, he's going to do incredible things in your life. God bless you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Enjoy Jesus Christ and share Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this good news. Thank you that we are forgiven and free by trusting in you. Lord, thank you for the unity that we have. And Lord, we pray for Indiana County, for this entire region, that your gospel would spread far and wide. Lord, we pray every church represented here tonight and every church that proclaims your name would be packed on Easter Sunday. Lord, we pray you would gather a great harvest of men and women and children and teens for your glory. And Lord, we pray for those who came tonight despite acute suffering. Lord, we pray that you would draw near to them. They will know your nearness 
and your love most clearly expressed in what you did for us while you hung and died on the cross, Jesus. And Lord, remind them of how the story ends. Lord, one day we will be with you forever with no more tears, pain, or suffering. Lord, we thank you, Jesus Christ, that you died as our substitute and you rose from the grave. And the whole church says, Amen. Well, the coffee bar is open. Feel free to hang out. Um, You're going to be here for a while anyway. The parking lot's packed. Thanks for coming.